One, two, three into the four. Traders move in stocks like they never moved before. GameStop, pot stocks, as long as there's a meme, buy a put, sell a short, they'll try anything. But the last ones in are always the last ones out. And when the brokers throw the brakes, you know they're going to shout. Don't tell me when to trade. I'll make my own mess. Or maybe I'll just go back to listening to the Investopedia Express. 2021 has started with some heat. Here's a little numbers gumbo to give you some flavor. Stocks have added more than $6.8 trillion globally in just six weeks. Last week saw $56 billion flowing into stocks, the most weekly fund flows into equities in history. The S&P 500 has notched nine record highs already. Digital currencies have soared to a market cap of more than $1.4 trillion. Bitcoin alone is up more than 65% this year. How about trading? An average of about 15 billion shares are being traded every day. That's more than double the average from last year, and there was a lot of trading going on last year. Retail trading as a share of overall market activity has nearly doubled from between 15% and 18% to over 30% in just the last few weeks. How about the SPAC boom? It is busting out. Some 155 special purpose acquisition companies filed for initial public offerings in the first six weeks of 2021, seeking to raise a collective $46 billion, according to Bloomberg. Its SPAC index is up 18% this year. If it's feeling a little steamy in here, roll down the window. Let's get set up for the week ahead. U.S. and Canadian markets and banks are closed on Monday for President's Day in the U.S. and for Family Day in Canada, and several Chinese and Asian markets will be closed for the Lunar New Year celebrations. Happy New Year if you're celebrating. It's the year of the ox, and historically speaking, the year of the ox delivers on average the third best market returns of all the Chinese zodiac signs at 8.2%. That's behind the goat and the tiger if you're keeping score, but it's been positive 100% of the time. The ox is considered a symbol of diligence, persistence, and honesty. I'm down with all three this year, so let's be ox-like. We're deep in the heart of earnings season, and we'll be hearing results this week from companies including Walmart, CVS Health, Shopify, Baidu, and Applied Materials, among others. Earnings have been better than expected, which is not unexpected, but companies are getting a little more comfortable giving forward guidance, which is comforting. If you like following the big money, this is your favorite time of year. 13F filings, those juicy disclosure forms hedge funds are required to fill out every quarter disclosing their positions, are due out. It's an opportunity to see where the whales were seeking alpha, but it will be particularly interesting now given the battle between day traders and hedge funds, particularly the short sellers. Which big hedge funds were on the other side of the GameStop trade? Who made money on the most shorted stocks last quarter and what are they holding now? Will day traders use those 13Fs to target hedge funds and their positions? Interesting times. It's going to get real interesting on Capitol Hill this week as Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev, Citadel founder Ken Griffin, and hedge fund executives involved in the recent meme day trading stock frenzy are scheduled to testify at a U.S. House virtual hearing. The hearing is called Game Stopped. Who wins and loses when short sellers, social media, and retail investors collide goes down on February 18th. It will also feature Keith Gill, the day trader from Reddit's Wall Street Bets, You may know him better as Roaring Kitty. He reportedly booked tens of million dollars in profits from his long position in GameStop. The screenplays, Netflix series, and podcasts about this whole episode of day trading are getting green-lighted as we speak. What a time to be a business news junkie. 
Speaking of green lights, cannabis stocks became the latest target for day traders. Last week, U.S. cannabis stocks listed on Canadian exchanges and Canadian cannabis companies listed on the U.S. over-the-counter exchanges were taken on wild rides, with shares of companies like Tilray rising triple digits on Wednesday before losing 80% on Thursday. The ETFMG Alternative Harvest ETF posted its largest three-day rally on record with a 42% surge before plunging 26% in two days. High times, indeed. The mad run on cannabis stocks over the past week may have obscured some of the key developments in what's actually happening inside the sector, dynamics that actually matter to investors, the companies across the industry, and the impact it has on other industries like health. Todd Harrison from CB1 Capital has been watching this sector grow for years. He's a good friend of Investopedia, an old friend of mine in the business, and welcome to The Express, Todd. It's good to finally have you here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, first, let's get some of the disclosures out of the way, just so people know that you invest money in this industry. You're an active investor in the industry. You may have positions in some of the stocks that we're going to talk about, but these are not recommendations for our listeners or from us, but you are an active player here. What does CB1 Capital do? We invest in a global cannabis market through a a wellness lens, but certainly liberal interpretation of that as we educate ourselves on the wellness properties of cannabis. And not all cannabis stocks are created equal, obviously. I think this last week has brought that to bear, and we could talk a little bit about that today. Sure. You and I have been talking about this space for years, and you always came at it from the wellness side of things. Now that we've actually had a health pandemic, it probably even matters even more. But there's so much happening in the industry, including the action in the past week or two. So first of all, you're you know more of a long-term investor, but you do trade stocks. How do you explain what happened last week in terms of the day trading, the intense moves we saw in some of these names, and this, this movement from day traders who really latched on to some of the names in the industry and tra- took them to... uh, withering heights, as we say. Yeah, sure. They sure did. You know, it's an interesting dynamic because the Canadian cannabis companies are listed on U.S. exchanges and the U.S. cannabis companies are listed on the Canadian exchanges because of the federal framework. So as it turns out, a lot of investors, you know, for a number of reasons, whether it's using Canadian names as proxies for uh, the green wave that we're seeing or whether it's third derivative read through on what, you know, a blue wave in our uh, government could eventually mean for Canadian cannabis names. But through our lens, you know, the opportunity is really in U.S. And Canada, I think it was a combination of of a few things. Certainly, there's been a fair amount of short interest in these names. Uh, Some of these uh, smaller names where the fundamentals have really been degrading for a period of time, the institutional set doesn't own them. and, And in many cases, I'm sure hedge funds are short them. But they're short them for a reason. So as we often say, in the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. And I think in the short term, there's a lot of uh, retail traders who are voting for cannabis through Canadian names, while through our lens, the real opportunity here is in the US names and elsewhere in the world. And we have been trying to educate people to look on the right side of the border here. Well, you're a columnist for Investopedia. You write about this sector all the time. Right after the election, you came to me and you said, we got to put up this column on the U.S. of cannabis, right? The laws are changing. Obviously, the Biden administration had talked about decriminalizing it. We saw some of the states swing to legalization, but there's other factors here. So what is all the noise obscuring what's actually happening in terms of the political landscape that investors need to be focused on? Let's start with politics and then we'll move into some other areas. Yeah, well, I think politics are part of it. And I don't think you can really separate, as we talk 
often about the slow motion perfect storm. And my, my friend Jason Wilde always says you want to give good news in doses and bad news at once. And, you know, certainly the way that the evolution of cannabis or U.S. cannabis came through was very much along those lines. And we go back a little context here. Uh, if you look at cannabis through the lens of, of these phases, these cycles, cannabis 1.0 was Canadian cultivation, and that had its boom and bust. January of 2018 was the top. Into March of last year was a 92% pullback in global cannabis, which just a bizarre crash in these names. And that had a, you know, a number of things behind it. Not unimportantly, the custody and clearing of cannabis-related securities was Pershing was the biggest player in the space and they booted everybody out last year. So there was real existential risk for U.S. cannabis. And I bring that up at Greenfield for a reason, because when we had that final flush in the first quarter of last year into March, into the pandemic, really cannabis could have gone either way as an industry. And, and when they deemed it to be essential, that was the shot across the bow. Uh, and as we learn more about the pandemic and the budget shortfalls at the state and municipal levels, as well as the unemployment for those uh, who were displaced by the pandemic, it became increasingly obvious that cannabis, U.S. cannabis, was the solution. There's upwards of 350,000 jobs currently. That's expected to grow to a million jobs. None of that is included in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS. So all of that's going to come on board. And that was really sort of the first wave. Uh, then you got Black Lives Matter and the whole social justice movement illuminating the war on drugs for what it was and what it is. And that was powerful in and of itself, but combined certainly was creating this tailwind for the sector that was left for dead. And then you had the five-state sweep uh, in November. Some of those states were red states. And it was just, if there was a mercy rule, they would have invoked it. This was the people speaking. And that, again, was the baseline for our bull case for the U.S. cannabis companies is this continued state adoption driving that East Coast domino, driving that total addressable market higher. So for our, you know, for our money, we were ready to go at that point. But when you get that river card fell in January and, that, and the blue Senate coming out of Georgia, that really sort of created a panic of sorts. We got calls from top five U.S. banks. We got calls from publicly traded CPG companies, as well as several uh, industry CEOs who said that they had to go shopping. There's still a lot of inefficiencies in the private marketplace and the U.S. side really needs to jack up capacity. So all of this, uh, you know, in the context of positioning with institutional investors and many, if not most retail investors not allowed to buy U.S. cannabis stocks. This is one of those rare times in history where the individual investor can front run institutions because they still can't buy, although certainly the, the volume that we've seen and the price action that we've seen suggests that some uh, have already begun. Right. So obviously retail traders have proven that they can move markets around and they can move sectors and individual stocks around. We saw that a few weeks ago. We've been seeing that forever. But most of the money in this market is retail traders and retail investors versus your big institutions, right, who can't hold it for, for obvious reasons. Not even retail investors on the U.S. equation because they're, they're listed in Canada or on pink sheets. So a lot of U.S. retail can't access these securities. And we advise MSOs, MSOS, it's a New York Stock Exchange listed ETF that has accessed U.S. cannabis through forward return swaps. It launched with a couple million dollars in September 1st. It's now pushing a billion dollars of AUM. This was really the first channel of capital into these names, and it certainly won't be the last. So when you talk about you know, setups and trading, and you look at, at this through the lens of those four primary metrics of fundamentals, technicals, the structural setup, 
And then psychology, when you have those four legs under the table, the chances of success uh, you know, are, are greatly enhanced. And that's what we have right now. Let's talk about the mergers and acquisitions activity that we're starting to see in this sector. I think it's probably just the beginning of a massive wave of this, obviously, and probably when the, the big consumer packaged goods companies come in, the big healthcare companies come in. But we've seen it internally, obviously, with Tilray. What do you see from where you sit in terms of who's going to be buying? Who are the big companies that are going to sort of end up with the riches at the end of this? Or is this going to take a while until the legislation and the political landscape becomes clearer to see much more merger and acquisition activity? I think there's a few different potential uh, scenarios. A lot of this is going to have to do with the timing of the federal legislation. And I think the clearest I can be on that is that it's going to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen, but all of those federal arbitrages, as we say, the 280E, which is an onerous tax code, you know, access to capital markets and uh, listing on U.S. Uh, exchanges, all of that's in front of us. And when that happens, whether that's through safe banking and, and safe harbor language in that, that could presumably turn this from a matter of law into a matter of compliance, uh, that's when we'll potentially see those entrants into the space. You know, David Klein, who's the Canopy Growth CEO, said, I believe he said that he expects to, Canopy to be operating in the U.S. by the end of the year, which would infer uh, that there is going to be some game-changing legislation on tap. And, and that's what we've heard away. But if you ask me, I think it's going to be very much a step function. You know, if you look at Sending it 50-50, I think that's going to be something that is going to be a, a bit of a high wire to get something comprehensive passed. But you know, Chuck Schumer came out and said that that he's working with uh, you know across the aisle. We know that this is a bipartisan issue, so certainly we think that you know we're going to see some movement. But we're not depending on it, and that's sort of the beauty here. Jason Wild again, I'll throw two Jason quotes in here today. Said into the election, you know, it doesn't really matter. They could pay us now, or they could pay us more later. Meaning that these MSOs, these multi-state operators, would be able to build a bigger moat and build up their market cap and their market share and demand a higher premium down the road the longer that this drags out. And I think that still is the case. So we're not even counting on the federal movement. We're counting on continued state level adoption. And if anything, we've seen that happen faster than we would maybe have thought would happen with Virginia coming out of the blue and, and New Mexico and Minnesota and, and Maryland and Connecticut. I mean, they're all coming. They have to and they should. Because there's nothing wrong with cannabis. It's, it's, this is not about getting high. This is about getting well. And that arbitrage is also in front of us. When we can test this and start to pull that efficacious agility through that clinical pipeline, it's going to light up that whole consumer curve. I mean, there's so many offsides here combining at once. If I sound excited, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. And I've said this before. You know, we could live 50 lifetimes and never be in this situation where we have as good a timing as we have right now. This, the asymmetric opportunity in front of us is astounding. And the fact that more people don't see it makes it even more compelling. Right. You've been saying that to me for years, and obviously people are catching on to You mentioned the Safe Banking Act. That's the inability for cannabis companies to bank, to bank federally and have and be recognized effectively. So it makes it very difficult. If you've ever been in into a dispensary, I'm told you can only use cash. So there are some issues and obviously those need to be worked out. But let me ask you, does legalization, federal legalization, actually benefit these public companies in the long run? Or do you see all these players move in if that happens, price compression and no real ability to grow market share? Or do the big public companies just get bigger because they're publicly held and they have the, the strength of the stocks on their back to help them acquire other companies? 
It's a great question. You know, I think the answer is it's a buy-build decision for a lot of these guys. The SOPs, you know, like any supply chain, you know, seed-to-sale cannabis is a process that is a, a skill. It's but the front end of that curve, that 1.0, that cultivation, that was the story from a couple of years ago. The 2.0 story is, is the notion of cannabis as an ingredient across the CPG or consumer packaged goods market. And that's not just about the THC that's going to get you high. It's also about the many therapeutic compounds that don't get you high, but produce beneficial effects. As that comes through the pipe, we think that that's going to continue to manifest. But I think to, your, to answer your question in terms of will there be price compression, I don't think that if there is price compression in terms of the plant, in terms of cannabis itself, that's accretive to margin in 2.0 because your input costs are going down and your margins are benefiting from that. Uh, so, you know, this is not going to be just about sort of the social lubricant side of the equation. It's about pet supplements, it's about cosmetics and vanity, it's about hemp creeds, about biodiesel fuel. There are so many applications and end products here um, that it's really going to, I think, manifest in, in many different form factors. And and that's, you know, so it's going to cross a number of different industries. Does the fact that a lot of these stocks were thrown into the day trading frenzy give people the wrong impression? Because if you look at financial media and guilty as charged, and it's everywhere you look, you know, weed stocks driven up by day traders, they're missing the point by painting them that way. But we understand that, that that's the way newspapers are sold, so to speak. How, how detrimental is it, do you think, to to the industry or not at all. It's just a, another sector caught up in the middle of a frenzy. It will draw attention to the disconnect between the U.S. MSOs and the Canadian LPs when the U.S. MSOs report earnings in, you know, I think it's next month. Yeah, about a month from now. But there's going to be a lot of uh, education uh, that's going to be needed to get people to focus on the right names. I've found that I've learned the most through other people on social media. There is a lot of very smart investors that have formed on Twitter that have educated me. And certainly, you know, when we started studying this space, there wasn't any Wall Street research. And that was part of our bull case. Like this is going to come online and Wall Street's going to cover it and institutions are going to adopt it again. We were a couple of years early. Shocker. I was actually 10 years early. If you saw that tweet in the last article. But uh, I would say MSO gang, I've learned more than I have any mainstream publication. Uh, I think I think I think the mainstream media, for the most part, has completely missed the story here. Uh, and I get it. Right. Those producers want to fill time. They want to get clicks and they want to get views. And the story that's going to do that is, is the most sort of uh, compelling to do it's that. the Chichen Chong of it all, not the, not the science. And, and you're, right, you're not, so right that's, about that. That's okay. You know, that just perpetuates the offsides. And as we've learned, that disconnect between perception and reality, that's where the profits are. And there's a pretty big chasm right now. And you're so good about stressing that in your, in your editorials for us and your columns for us. And it's the science that, that always helps you learn the most about the industry. I don't care what you're studying. You've been so good about pushing that forward. Todd Harrison from CB1 Capital, so good to have you on The Express. We're going to have you back because we're going to continue to look at this industry. Thanks for joining us. It's good to see you, my friend. And good to see you, my friend. Take care. It's terminology time. Time for the educated investor to get smart with the term we need to know this week. This week's term comes at the suggestion of one of our smart listeners who gets a pair of those Investopedia socks. I've been mailing them out like crazy. Thanks for your suggestions. Keep up the good work. They suggested short squeeze as the term of the week. And given the hearings on Capitol Hill about the short squeeze day trading frenzy, we're going to be hearing a lot about short squeezes this week. 
Short squeeze, according to my favorite website, occurs when a stock or other asset jumps sharply higher, forcing traders who had bet that its price would fall to buy it in order to forestall even greater losses. Their scramble to buy only adds to the upward pressure on the stock's price. Short sellers borrow shares of an asset that they believe will drop in price in order to buy them after they fall. If they're right, they return the shares and pocket the difference between the price when they initiated the short and the actual sale price. If they're wrong, they're forced to buy at a higher price and pay the difference between the price they set and the actual sale price. GameStop, AMC, BlackBerry, Tootsie Roll, the Canadian cannabis stocks, these have been all squeezed as day traders bet against short sellers, driving those stocks higher and causing huge losses for anyone who dared to go short. We'll let the late and legendary Toni Morrison take us out this week in honor of Black History Month. Here's the Pulitzer and Nobel Prize winning novelist delivering a commencement address in 2004 to Wesley College, telling graduates to be their own story. The theme you choose may change or simply elude you, but being your own story means you can always choose the tone. It also means that you can invent the language to say who you are and how you mean. You be your own story this week, whoever you say you are, whoever you want to be. And you'll find me a little further on down the line next week on the Investopedia Express. Investopedia Express.